Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. It is the dog days of pop culture in the dog days of August, and we have a movie about talking dogs that we're going to talk about this week. Contributor Rachel Llewellyn will be here to speak with me about Strays, a new talking dog comedy starring Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx and many other people, and she'll be along in a bit. We're also going to talk to Chris Lambert for the second week in a row. This week, Chris wrote about a controversy involving movie talk, which are uh, TikTok critics who talk about movies, and they were written about in the New York Times this week, and traditional film critics, some of whom just got started writing about films a few years ago, are up in arms about these movie talk kids, and Chris and I are going to discuss that. But first, Pablo Gallaga is here to talk about the new DC superhero movie, Blue Beetle, a Mexican family comedy that is also a kind of a fun superhero action movie, and we'll talk to Pablo about that right after this musical interlude. The summer movie season is coming to an end, but there's one last summer blockbuster, or at least semi-blockbuster, uh, for us to talk about before we head into quality movie season. Well, quality movie season will start in October, and from the next six weeks, it's going to be a lot of disposable stuff. Uh, but the, the movie I'm talking about, the last blockbuster of the summer season, is Blue Beetle, the uh, last DC movie to come out before James Gunn takes over uh, the DC Cinematic Universe. But I have a feeling Pablo Gallaga is here uh, to talk to me about Blue Beetle. I have a feeling that uh, this Blue Beetle is going to be part of it. Hey, Neil. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? So, yeah. So, I mean, I feel like um, Blue Beetle, uh, you know, this character, uh, first of all, is like an iconic modern DC character. He's not a classic DC character that I grew up knowing about. But my son, who is... 20 uh, is a big Blue Beetle fan, and he he was all into the mythology of this character. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on DC, whereas more I'm more of a Marvel person these days. But yeah, like for me, it was, you know, the Batmans, the Supermans, the Flash, and, you know, just the Justice League. I honestly don't even know if Blue Beetle ever breaks into the Justice League in the comics. But uh, yeah, uh, more of an obscure character here, and I think it's going to be a lot of people's first introduction to him. Yeah, I mean, he appears in, you know, like the Young Justice cartoons and some of the sort of ancillary uh, DC material. He's new. He's a new character. Uh, he is basically like a young uh, Mexican guy named Jaime Reyes who uh, becomes, I guess, infected or or, symbi or or fused with this alien technology that turns him into this, uh, I don't know exactly what it is, like a, a cyborg, half alien, half person. I don't know, like a, like a machine, a really powerful machine. He's sort of Spider-Man-ish in his, in his vibe, a little bit. His powers, I would say, like, you would smush together maybe Iron Man and Green Lantern, yeah. right? Like, he, he can kind of, like, create things out of nothing, but he's powered almost by, like, a, like an exosuit situation. Right, and there's, a, there's a, an intelligence that talks to him. Right, yeah, like Jarvis. Like an AI. Yeah, but he's a modern character. Um, but, you know, what, what, what I think gives Blue Beetle its... Um, sets it apart a little bit from other superhero movies is it's, it's got, it's a very Mexican movie. You know, there's a Mexican American director. Uh, Jaime Reyes is a Mexican American character and there's a strong, strong family 
uh, Mexican family at the core of the movie. And then I feel like gives this movie um, heart uh, and, and a little bit of depth that maybe, you know, lacks for, uh, in certain modern superhero movies. Right. And I mean, as a Latino myself, like it, it's just, it brought so much pride to me. Like, I think the film itself is a bit uneven and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of middle of the road as far as superhero films go more of like kind of in the, the Shazam range. But uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it knows the culture so well. There's a bunch of in-jokes about telenovelas, uh, you know, the the jokes around the grandmother being like a chingona at the end, like that's just so awesome. Um, yeah, I think that's- A chingona meaning like a, like a revolutionary? Uh, it's honestly more of like a, like a bad word, more of just being a badass kind of situation. But yes, that's, that's the reason why. But uh, yeah, this is, the, I think it's gonna resonate with these audiences that have that background. Right. It's not like, right. This is not a great movie. You know, it's not a, it's not a great work of art. You know, the script is pretty formulaic. Uh, the effects are, you know, they're okay. They're kind of mediocre. Uh, the villain is super cartoonish. Although I did find it was interesting. Like the main villain is played by Susan Sarandon, who's just your kind of typical evil corporate person. Uh, but there's this antagonist in a, in a bad super suit who I thought was really interesting. Like he's a Guatemalan who's, family was essentially massacred by the CIA and he was sent to the overseas school of the Americas. And I'm like, Am I, did Noam Chomsky write the script? You know? <laughs> yeah. It gets a little bit deep into that, like anti-imperialism stuff towards the end. Like, yeah, that was very surprising and refreshing. Right. And yeah, there's a whole thing about it. I was like, well, this is actually like, I mean, it was literally, I was like, it was like reading Howard Zinn or something. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. You know, it's safe to make those kinds of anti-imperialistic statements in 2023. And that might've been a little bit more controversial 40 years ago. Uh, but you know, I, I, I did, I, I enjoyed the, um, the references, the cultural references. And I did that, so the telenovela that the grandma watches, what was that Maria something? What was it? Uh, Maria del Barrio. Like it's basically the, the story about like a, a woman who is saved by like a richer man. And like, she's kind of living the lavish lifestyle. Yeah. And well, that's interesting too, is like these, this family is not living a lavish lifestyle. You know, this is a working class family. Uh, the father is a car mechanic of some sort, but they're, you know, they're so happy together. You know, it's, there's a lot of love among the family. Yeah. It's mentioned a number of times throughout the story that that's like kind of his superpower actually really like just having that family in his corner, whether he wants it or not. Yeah. So, you know, it's this really kind of loving evocation of it. And let's not um, forget that, you know, the, the movie has in its back pocket a, a really uh, hilarious supporting performance from George Lopez. I was going to say, like, your mileage may vary on him. But yeah, if you're a fan of George Lopez, you're going to like this film. Like, that's he's he's the comedic center of it. Yeah, and he's not, um, he doesn't look like sitcom George Lopez. Like, he has a long, long white goatee. He's, he's like an eccentric uncle, basically. Oh, he's the deal. He, he's the, the crazy Mexican uncle. Like, the one that is into Cheech and Chong, the one that's, you know, smoking the weed. Like, that's that's the uncle that, you know, is the funny uncle. Right. And I guess, you know, every every family of any kind has a funny uncle. I, I try to be the funny uncle in my own family. Um, but, you know, Same. this right. But um, but this guy, like, you know, with his he's like literally this Cheech and Chong bobbleheads on the uh, on the dashboard of his truck that he calls Taco. 
a Tacoma, a Tacoma that he calls Taco. It's, it's great. A Tacoma. So, you know, and, and, and he builds this machine that he calls El Chapolin. <laughs> Which is essentially an EMP. Like, yeah, it's like, of course your uncle builds an EMP. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one uncle doesn't. But it's named after El Chapolin, Colorado, who uh, is a, a sort of a, a Mexican TV, a cheesy superhero that I, I, be- I believe is who Bumblebee Man and The Simpsons is based on. Yeah, definitely. He's like a, like a cockroach, like a red cockroach. So the Blue Beetle is not like a, um, it's not a masterpiece. And, you know, it's, I think there's a lot of superhero fatigue out there, right? I mean, we've had, we've been just bombarded with superheroes for a decade and a half. And, you know, I feel like if this movie had come out 10 years ago, I think it would have been a, maybe a bigger hit than it than it's going to be. I mean, they're kind of burying it in late August. Yeah, and I mean, we kind of glossed over where it stands as far as what's happening with James Gunn taking over DC films. Um yeah, it, it's it's arriving at this point where I think that I mean they've already said it, it's likely going to get a sequel and it's you know considered part of the DC universe. I think that it, it's middle of the road as far as quality, but it, it's probably a starting point for something much larger. I think the second one could probably be better. Well, let's and let's also talk about real quick uh, the the lead uh, Jaime Reyes, Blue Beetle, is played by Sholo uh, uh, Maraduena, who uh, you know came to my attention first uh, as. Um, as Miguel in Cobra Kai. And, you know, my wife and I were watching that show. And other than Sensei Johnny Lawrence, you know, he, he was the one who stood out as having some, like, star power, right? He had some real magnetism. Uh, he was extremely good in that in that show, playing, uh, you know, working with some extremely cheesy soap opera uh, material. And I it's pretty obvious. I feel like what's happening to him here uh, is similar to what happened with, let's say, Simu Liu uh, in the Marvel Universe, how he was, you know, in this Canadian sitcom and then became a, you know, a superhero, basically. I feel like this is sort of the same path. Very similar. Um, I was doing some research on him. He's He's got, like, a YouTube channel. He's a singer. Like, he's put out some songs. I found out he had a very small part in the season three of Twin Peaks, like, out of nowhere. Like, I couldn't believe that. Yeah. So, yeah, he's he's been around. Yeah, that was pre-show as well but yeah but but his real i mean his you know that this is obviously like you know a, a huge thing for him but you know he he came to us really through cobra kai and you know he's very very handsome very charming very personable very sort of all-american boy in a lot of ways um and so i feel like he's got a lot of star power and dc could could do a lot worse than to make him one of the centerpieces of its new universe. Yeah, they can definitely hang his hat on, hang their hat on his performance. He really stands out, and I think he's going to own this role and grow into it. All right, Blue Beetle is in theaters now. Uh, see it and try to pick up all the references. Uh, the Cheech and Chong one, I actually had to, I actually had to like, there's a blink and you miss it thing, you know. It's, but it was there. Yeah, on the dashboard, just a little bobblehead. I would have liked to have maybe seen Cheech and Chong during one of the fight scenes, you know, just kind of hanging out in the background saying, oh, man. Or the the damn gummies that are everywhere. Like, that could have been a reference. Yeah, there could have been product placement for Cheech and Chong gummies. I think that's the one thing this movie missed. <laughs> All right, Pablo Gallaga, thank you so much for stopping in to talk to me about Blue Beetle. What are they? Oh, no, that can't be right. This is Will Ferrell. I'm lost. You're a stray man. You can do anything you want. This beer doesn't taste good, but I like how it's making me feel. This is Jamie Foxx. I recently this couch. Best sex of my life. And she dirty, too. Oh, well, I, I can tell. Looks like she hasn't been washed in years. I'll see you later, baby. It was nice to meet you. Back at the news, 
were completely lost, and my little puppy paw pads are really hurting right now. This could be a lot worse. How could this get worse? the craziest thing I have ever seen. And I'm Dennis Quaid, and Dennis Quaid has seen some Hold up. Sit! The cops! Oh, God, what do we do? Calm down. I got this. Hello, officer. None of us... Shut the up. Strays in theaters August 18. Rated R. Believe it or not, there's a movie in theaters right now called Strays, where Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx play talking dogs. And there are many other actors who also voice... Talking Dogs. It's a hard R-rated Talking Dog movie. I saw a piece that said, or at least a tweet that said, Strays is a good name for this movie because it's kind of like a box office stray. Like, no one actually, when I tell people about it, they don't actually believe it exists. You know, how, how could this thing even exist? It's received very little publicity. Uh, it's going to vanish into streaming very quickly. And Rachel Llewellyn is here to talk to me about strays. We have both seen this movie in theaters. I even wrote about it on Book and Film Globe. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Neil. Yes, I have seen the Docking Dog movie. Yes, and you are a person, uh, but I, I I chose you, and I also am a person. We are not dogs who are talking on this on this podcast, but I chose you for this important assignment because, well, because A, because you are, uh, you know, an aficionado of comedy like I am, and also you are a dog owner and dog lover, so I thought we could assess uh, the movie's accuracy of the dog owner wife accurately because I'm 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 a, I'm a dog owner myself and have been for most of my life. So Strays, you know, it kind of gets at some truths about uh, about dogs. There's some funny dog humor in it. Um, the stuff I liked the most was like the non-scatological stuff. You know, like how when someone was trying to tell a knock knock joke and every time they said knock knock, the dogs wouldn't stop barking. That was kind of funny. Oh, yeah. That was cute. Uh, kind of skipping around the scatological humor is sort of like dodging all of those uh, doggy gifts in the uh, scene at the dog pound. It's it, There's a lot of it. This is a hard R-rated movie, as you mentioned, and it's, you know, not for any other reason other than, you know, well, there's violence, and but it's mostly, you know, it's it's pretty filthy. Um, it's definitely not for those with a delicate palate. It's, you know, a hilarious take on the talking dog movie, but it kind of tells a heartwarming story about how, you know, friendship helps you get through these tough life transitions and helps you kind of see yourself worth through toxic relationships. And man, it starts off with a toxic relationship, right? The, the whole premise is that, uh, Will Ferrell is Reggie, you know, this kind of naive, innocent, a uh, little terrier and his totally neglectful dirtbag owner, Doug, played brilliantly by Will Forte. Uh, he keeps trying to get rid of this dog and dump him off with an increasingly long game of fetch. Eventually just straight up abandons him in the city where Reggie runs into a group of strays who sort of teach him to embrace his freedom and they go on a mission of revenge where, I mean, I don't want to plot spoil here, but it's kind of all over. I don't think I'm going to ruin anything by saying what the end game is here narratively, but I can promise you pretty confidently you have never seen a, a climax on film uh, like the one in this film. And yeah, it, it, the, the cast and, and the audience just shocked by the level of shenanigans that are written into this movie. It's, it's hilarious. It's written by uh, Dan Peralt. He did American Vandal, kind of the true crime mockumentary that was on Netflix, uh, you know, also kind of genital based humor, but brilliantly done. He won a, he 
won a Peabody for that. And he also uh, did uh, players like the esports documentary or mockumentary. So Dan Peralta is a great writer. And it's directed by the guy whose last movie, uh, Greenbaum, I believe his name is Josh Greenbaum, uh, which is the name of three out of the four guys I went to Hebrew school with. Um, he, he, he directed uh, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which came out, essentially came out during, uh, during COVID uh, and is kind of a, one of the better comedies of the last few years. So it has, it has a lot of pedigree uh, and it's produced by uh, uh, Lord Miller who made the Lego movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, I mean, look, this isn't a great film, but, uh, but I feel like it's kind of, kind of a little underrated here. I mean, I wasn't bored. I laughed most of the time. It was very, you know, it was tight. It was a tight 90, you know, they didn't, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of wasted scenes. Um, Isla Fisher and Randall Park play the sort of the, the secondary leads that they're not strays. They're just like, they're dogs that have owners or jobs or whatever. And they kind of join the, the Boston Terrier and the rat terrier or whatever, whatever Reggie is on their quest. And they both had, you know, I thought Isla Fisher was, was pretty funny uh, as this Australian shepherd, this kind of pretty Australian shepherd with a, a real, uh, really good sense of smell, you know? And there's, I would say that like, the, sc- the scatological stuff, they could have toned it down 20%, you know? It was a little much. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like a lot of those scenes were a little overwrought just to kind of elicit more discomfort from the audience, almost. I, I definitely took it to the edge of, you know, taste um, and crassness. Like, it's very much along the lines of Ted and Sausage Party type of genre, but the, this is, a, like, a little bit more layered because they they were sort of setting this up as an adult story following adult themes, but without being unfunny. I mean, like, we're dealing with themes of, like, animal neglect, and that's, like, a pretty, you know, universally intense kind of sobering topic so the writing and the pacing of that narrative like the whole foundation for their journey it like it had to be delivered just right and I think Will Forte did a really good job of being kind of threatening but sort of pathetic too without kind of calibrating that balance was the really big trick that he did here yeah there's this there's a, a definitely a strong message against animal abuse you know, woven into this filthy movie. You know, the premise is, let's see what happens if Lady and the Tramp actually do it, basically. <laughs> you know, on screen. It goes there. But underneath, lying it underneath it all is this message that, you know, you know, these dogs love us unconditionally, even if we're assholes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we need to treat them right. And we need to treat as best we can. You know, yeah. you know, Will Forte is obviously the most abusive dog, but you know, um, the Isla Fisher dog, Maggie, I believe her name, her owner is like an, an Instagram idiot who just uses her as a prop Ugg, who is the Jamie Foxx Boston Terrier character. Something terrible happens to him, you know, and uh, right. the movie doesn't soft pedal that. It's kind of odd that I was like, I didn't expect such a serious core to this ridiculous scatological comedy. Well, it's interesting how they each have their own little mini character arc, you know, like uh, Bug voiced by Jamie Foxx. His character arc almost goes in the opposite direction of Reggie. I won't plot spoil further than that, but he kind of grows into a different place. And then uh, Isla Fisher's character, she kind of is in, you know, kind of a more fulfilling place that takes advantage of her skills. And then, you know, the, what happens with Hunter, the anxious great Dane, um, he, you know, he kind of has a personal triumph as well. So they do a good job sort of closing off everybody's 
storyline. They they do a good job kind of poking fun at the anim, animal genre, but by the same token, it stands on its own. You know, it's kind of a really funny story about those toxic relationships and this nice mix of kind of raunchiness and sincerity um, is pretty hard to do. It sounds like you kind of liked Strays. I kind of did. I love. I loved the um the cameos were great. There was a like Dennis Quaid was there was a cameo and I like there's Brett Gilman from Stranger Things is like a dog catcher and Sofia Vergara is like a couch. I don't <laughs> sexy couch. She's a sexy couch. Uh, that, need we say more? Like, just if you, whatever you're expecting, if you're expecting Homeward Bound, just set that aside and go watch Strays. Oh. Yeah, for sure. Before I go, I have a funny story. Like my what you know, Bug is a Boston Terrier. We own two Boston Terriers. So she saw the trailer with me months ago, my wife Regina, and she seen the poster. She's like, I was like, You want to go see the the Boston Terrier movie? She's like, Oh yeah, yeah, I really want to go see that. So we went on like an opening night. Uh, the tickets were like for seven thirty. She's like, you know, we're gonna be the oldest people in the theater. And I said, I said, Well, maybe but we're not that old regina i mean they're probably there might be someone in the theater older than us and then i realized she thought this was a kid's movie this is a hard r this is a harder r movie than sausage party this is like this is like south park times two hard r it's like no come on you're kidding. stop messing with me but i i finally had to show her the trailer yeah you, you kind of wonder how many parents of you know six and seven eight-year-olds are like oh it's a talking dog movie and like they take their kids you know look at people look at the trailer first <laughs> i mean literally there's so much profanity in this movie you wouldn't believe it there's also like just ton, gallons of poop and pee and other fluids uh barf it's so much body here it's like aggressively filthy absolutely <laughs> Expect nothing less. I love how the dogs are like, what do they do with our poop? Are they making it into chocolate? They don't know. Why are they always thinking, why are they always collecting it? Uh, but you know, if you if you have a dog, you know, a lot of dog life is like cleaning up fluids and hair and you know, dealing with parasites and licking and you know, stuff. Um if, you know, you're living with these animals and they're kind of weird. They love us. Oh, happy side note. Director uh, Josh Greenbaum, he actually, he adopted the dog that played Reggie as a puppy. Oh, that's sweet. I think Reggie, um, well, he, so he adopted a rich dog. Great. But, you know, I I, I feel like, uh, I think Reggie was, uh, well, he would miss her. Like, at the beginning, one of Will Forte's girlfriends called him Benji. He kind of looks like Benji from our childhood. Uh, so I think Reggie was actually a miss here for Benji. So he's kind of like a Benji parody. And the movie itself is like a, almost like a parody of the classic Benji journey movies. That's very true. Yeah, you've got that geographical distance where, you know, they're braving the hazards of the road. And yes, I liked how they took that sort of narrative format, but they they kind of manipulated it more toward modern sensibilities, but they retain sort of the fundamental sweetness that kind of underlies a lot of the more sentimental animal movies. And I like that they weren't trying to just totally clown on that or subvert that, but kind of celebrate it. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I have to say, like, you know, I, it's Strange has not gotten the best reviews. I don't know if you looked at the Rotten Tomatoes. It's a little, laying a little under 60, but I like it. I like it. I like the Strays. I can't help it. I'm, 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 I'm a sucker. For, for, uh, for a Boston Terrier movie, basically. It's the most Boston Terrier movie ever made. Yes, yeah, that's a true statement. Howling. I was howling, Rachel. All right. 
Thank you so much. I hope you don't have to clean up too much poop this weekend. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. It's a wish we all have. A controversy erupted on film Twitter this week when the New York Times revealed the existence to the world of something called movie talk. Uh, and that's not T-A-L-K, that's T-O-K. It's a subsection of TikTok where people, quote-unquote, review movies. Uh, but the New York Times article kind of revealed that a lot of these people are actually just paid publicists for the studios. Or they're on, <laughs> they don't actually work for the studios, but they're on sort of payola system. And uh, it made a lot of people who are more serious about movies online, let's say, uh, you know, it made people who write their letterbox reviews or uh, or or their sort of online movie reviews made them su suddenly they were they were seeming like Pauline Kael or Andrew Saris or something. And uh, Chris Lambert is one of those not movie talkers but like online critics. And he wrote about the movie talk controversy for us, and he's here today to talk to me about it. Hello, Chris. Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah, two weeks in a row, man. This, this is going to become a habit if we're, if we're not careful. Uh, so <laughs> so what? What is movie talk? What what the heck is going on here? I mean, it's just like any social media ecosystem. You start to have your niches that form. And movie talk just happens to be like film Twitter or film gram. I don't know what it's called on Instagram. But you know, Instagram has its little movie niche and movie world. You have the same kind of thing going on on TikTok. They just call it movie talk. And of course, you have just the broad amount of content that's involved in something like that. But then you have names and faces and content creators that start to rise within the ranks of that system and become the go-to voices uh, as people become involved in that world. Yeah. You know, I, I'm on, I, I read a lot of film Twitter and I, I feel like film Twitter, I mean, there are people who just review movies on Twitter, but there's also like, you know, Longtime critics like Dave Kerr, Glenn Kenny, Dana Stevens, uh, you know, people who like have been reviewing movies for a long time are also sort of part of film Twitter. You know, so you have a lot of that sort of the Gen X types, the types of people who are who are on Twitter, who kind of started Twitter. Um, that's not the case in movie talk. You don't you don't have like 60 year old, you know, people who used to write for the Village Voice, like making <laughs> TikToks about movies. No, I'm sure you can find some of your uh, extreme examples of people that have made the the switch to try to be in what is the horizon or the the new world of content creation right now as everybody's flocking to TikTok. But for the most part, yeah, the New York Times article even pointed out that a lot of the people that are making up movie talk or the content creators are mid 30s to early 20s. And of the creators they highlighted, I believe there were eights in there. Uh, there were a couple that were over 30 and then a couple that were still in college. Yeah, that's what you'd expect on TikTok. And that's okay. Like, I think it's good to have younger people uh, writing about uh, movies and TV and, and books and whatever because, you know, the tastes change and aesthetics change. And it's not like uh, older people necessarily have a, a monopoly on interesting opinions uh, or points of view. But the problem is, is that a lot of these uh, creators are severely compromised and are paid. Are they, they are paid by the studios? Is that right? 
Yeah, the the article gets into it tries to give them a little bit of an out saying that they're I believe the the phrase that they use was ad hoc uh, morality <laughs> to the issue and that some refuse to actually do paid promotion in a review. They'll do a paid promotion for a trailer or they'll do paid promotion for the launch of a movie, but not necessarily in the review. But there's an implication within that of if you start saying negative things about the content that we're releasing, like if they make a bunch of negative posts about a string of Netflix movies, are they still going to get the same opportunities regardless if those reviews are paid promotion or not? Well, right. Like, well, like if, if Warner brothers sends you, you know, a nice pair of bespoke Barbie sunglasses or whatever um, you know, yes, they're not going to say we demand a nice review of Barbie in return. But, you know, I mean, you're going to be inclined to want to keep on that gravy train. You know, there's, even if you're not getting directly paid by the studio, there are junkets, there's swag, you know, there's access to interviews and stuff like that, that, you know, that's just kind of how the publicity game works. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of older critics either had kind of been there, done that and graduated from it or never did it in the first place. I mean, the benefits you're describing, I think a lot of critics look on favorably in terms of just, oh, this helps me make contents. These content creators are getting, the article states, tens of thousands of dollars per post sometimes just to... Really? From, from, from movie studios? Yeah. So it's not even like the same access that journalists would get that's just, hey, you got to interview this person, now go write a ton of content and hopefully you can make some money off of that. It's we're going to give you a thousand dollars just to tell people, hey, this movie's out and make it seem fun. And that's a whole different level. You get 10 of those a month, you're making a good living making TikTok suddenly. And 10 a month sounds small. Yeah. And some of these TikToks, I mean, I don't want to, not to discredit the amount of effort that oh, goes please, into please, it, <laughs> but please. there's some of them that were just. Let me tell you about this movie. It freaked me out so much. And then it's just a 30-second plot synopsis with the photo in the background. It's like, you should watch it. The ending kind of blew my mind. And it's for a random Netflix movie that I'm sure might be okay, but it's hyped up, talked up, and promoted. And even though that's not a paid promotion post, you know that it's influenced by the fact that there will be a paid promotion post. Mm -hmm. And that it's the Netflix movies that tend to get this. And it just, it reeks. Yeah, it reeks. But it's just kind of pathetic, honestly. Yeah. And, you know, the, there was that, some of this content is, as you pointed out in the piece you wrote for us about this, it's just egregiously stupid, kind of like bad BuzzFeed articles almost. Yeah, I mean, the reviews, and granted we are in struck times, so it does feel like maybe the amount of reviews that the content creators are making or the movie talkers are making aren't maybe on the level as they used to. But I was going back through, you know, more than a year of content when researching this. And some of them were only doing reviews maybe one to three times a month. And then a lot of the content was just these BuzzFeed like what movies are worth watching that you haven't watched or I, I literal examples here uh, movie sequels better than the original actors mm. will miss when they retire 
we need a sequel to the nice guys. I mean, it's not exactly an in-depth analysis of the issues in the, uh, in, in the Hollywood strikes. Right. So, um, you know, I saw this one TikTok. Uh, getting excoriated a lot. And we, we wrote an article about um, the Snow White discourse this week as well on the site. And there was some guy was like, was, this was held up as a, a branch of a, a special idiocy. He was talking about how it was stupid that, that uh, Rachel Zegler was scared of Snow White when she was a little kid. And I'm like, that is not even what the controversy was about this week. You know, the controversy was about the fact that she was like saying that Snow White is like, a you know, that, that doesn't need Prince Charming, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like they're not even smart enough to hone in on what is interesting about the, the discourse. Yeah, that video in particular seems pretty egregious just in terms of the reaction. And th that guy's videos tend to be very positive, thoughtful, but he was one of the ones in the piece that said, you know, when you read a critic's review, it almost sounds like a computer wrote it and is kind of trashing what other critics do. And then just goes on to have what amounts to a very obtuse opinion that ends up being championed because of this New York Times article, because of the amount of followers. And it's influential while also being uninformed, which makes it infuriating. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you point out in your piece, too. It's not like previous generations of critics didn't say stupid stuff, didn't get stuff wrong, weren't tools of the studios. You know, it's not like this is anything new. I mean, there, there have been there's countless examples of critics who just completely misjudge something that is now universally considered a classic or love something that is now considered garbage. You know, Roger Ebert gets a pass on most things. Pauline Kael gets a pass on most things. But most other critics have these enormous misfires. You know, I was going back and I even was going back and reading like movie reviews by James Agee from the 1930s or whatever. I'm you know, half the movies that I've never, I've never even heard of. You know, <laughs> I mean, they don't exist anymore, even on Turner Classic Movies. So it's not like this is anything new, and it's also not like generations of critics don't replace older generations because they do, right? They do. It's just frustrating that it's being treated as some kind of hip great advanced awesome thing when it's just it's just the cycle of how things go and the cycle of hackery yeah and if you're that mad at critics you know that you're just the same <laughs> like you're not any better you're maybe worse in some ways in different ways maybe but it's not like what they're doing is more amazing or stupendous or mind-blowing. You go and check the content. They're dedicated and charming, often very charming. And I get why they have audiences, but also not special. <laughs> and whenever this kind of thing happens, like, well, the same kind of thing kind of, kind of happened to me when, like, uh, millennials were making fun of me when I was writing about being a new dad. I was like, oh, your time is coming, people. It's coming. <laughs> You'll see. You'll... And, you know, I, I, that's really the way I feel about these TikTok critics. You know, one day they're going to wake up and their audience will be declining or aging or disinterested and they'll be old and suddenly the payola will stop. <laughs> then I'll, ha I'll have a good laugh uh, from whatever nursing home I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I remember specifically when I first started hearing all the articles about millennials and millennial culture and I was in college and realizing I'm part of this group and what does this even mean? And for so long being talked about as the dominant tastemaker group 
you know, over a decade. And now at this point, almost 20 years later, having this new group come up, I just, I sympathize so much with you. <laughs> Welcome to my nightmare. Uh, it was always going to happen. And, uh, you know, I've, I've never met you in person, but you, you seem like a great guy, but there are, I have a lot of schadenfreude for a lot of millennials who I dislike. So this is just that, this is just that playing out. Uh, that said, movie talk is really annoying and, you know, I hope that there, I hope there remains some room somewhere for uh, criticism and, uh, you know, uh, entertainment news with integrity. I, I have a place you can go to find it, Chris. Uh, it's called Book and Film Globe. Book and Film Globe. I've heard of that. It's great. It's a great website. We have a podcast, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Chris Lambert is one of our newest contributors, and he joined us this week to Cut movie talk down. I have a feeling this is it. This is going to be the final nail in the coffin. Movie talk. <laughs> They'll never recover. Never. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Chris Lambert. Chris's article about the movie talk community and the movie talk controversy is up on Book and Film Globe now. Also, thanks to Pablo Gallaga for talking to me about Blue Beetle and to Rachel Llewellyn for dropping in to talk about strays. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and talking dog movies and so much more. I and my dog will talk to you next week. Original Production.